1991, there was a judge who fined two brothers named Gino and Russell, who were owners of a uh, wrecking company in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and they were fined nearly $900,000 for operating an illegal dump. In 1986, on the empty lots that surrounded their facility, these brothers began dumping debris from their buildings. And eventually, that mound of rubble and trash and things covered two full acres and reached a height of 35 feet, the equivalent of a three-story building. The state of Connecticut then ordered them to, to clean it up, but the brothers claimed there was nowhere in the city limits of Bridgeport that they could dump this legally. And they couldn't now afford to have this huge amount hauled away, but they were still ordered to. They spent $330,000 in one year to have the debris hauled away, but barely made a dent in the pile. But what made that story interesting was something that one of the brothers said when they were confronted with the facts and realized what they had to do. Gino, one of the brothers, said, it was never supposed to get this high. Tonight, we're going to talk about one of the least popular concepts in all of the Bible, and that is the concept of sin. We live in a time where sin is normalized by our culture. It's even watered down quite often by the religious world around us. It's called a mistake. It's called a misstep. It's just a problem. In fact, even to use the word sin is often looked down upon. But the Bible is not afraid to use the word sin. Tonight we're going to study the concept, and then this week in your uh, one-word books, and I hope you've picked yours up, there's still a few left, and a few names aren't marked off. I'm hoping people just hadn't marked their names off, but if you've not picked up one of the devotional books from the Old Fellowship Hall, do that tonight, and you'll enjoy the reading this week, even though it's on a very difficult subject. I know the writer fairly well. I married one of his sisters. Uh, Jason Moon is the, the writer of the devotionals for this week. Many of you know him, of course, married to Candy, who uh, grew up here. But the Bible is not afraid of the word sin. Now, of course, there are other terms that all point back to that same concept, transgression, wickedness, and others. But just the word sin, just that word itself, is found some 448 times in the Bible. But just knowing that the word is there is not enough. We need to understand what God was talking about, what the Bible is saying when it uses the word sin. The very first time you come across the word sin in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7, where, of course, Cain kills his brother Abel. And God says to Cain in verse 7 of that chapter, If you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not do well, here's the word, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, I think it's significant that since this is the first time we actually see the term or the word sin in the Bible, that God almost personifies the word for us. It's crouching at the door. Of course, sin isn't really a person or a personality, but it gives us a picture that we can hang our minds on. It's crouching at the door. The word, the Hebrew word you see in the Old Testament for sin, as you see defined on the screens, is a word that simply means an offense and its penalty. By the way, it's the same word that you find in Psalm 51 and verse 3 where David said, My sin is ever before me. When you know that simple definition of the word, that, uh, that verse, that phrase takes on even more meaning because it's basically saying that David is saying that the realization that I have offended God will not leave my mind. When you come to the New Testament and come to the word sin, of course you have a different word. 
In John chapter 1, we see John announcing the coming of Jesus. And he says in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin or the sins of the world. The word sin or sins in the New Testament comes from a Greek word that means to miss the mark. It also means to be without a share in something. God's mark is perfect holiness. But when we sin, we miss that mark. We fall short of it. And if we don't turn from that sin, we miss a share in His holiness. By the way, the very last time you come across the actual word sin in the Bible is in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 17, where John uses the same word, the one that means to miss the mark, but he gives a very powerful explanation in a very short sentence when he says, All unrighteousness is sin. In other words, there's not a small missing of the mark and a big missing of the mark. It is simply missing the mark. If it is something that God deems to be unrighteous, it is missing the mark. But before we go any further tonight, we need to ask ourselves, do I really see sin that way? When I understand what this word means, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, do I see it that way? Do I see sin as an affront to a holy God? Do I see it as missing the mark of holiness? Do I see it as an offense to God? Because that's what the word means. That's what Scripture itself says sin is. And so with that in mind tonight, I want us to turn back to that Scripture we read a few moments ago from Genesis chapter 3. Even though the word sin is not found in Genesis 3, there is no doubt that this is the place in Scripture where sin enters the world through the sins of Adam and Eve. It is a tragic chapter. It's often described as the fall of man or sometimes simply as the fall. But it illustrates for us just how tragic sin really is. Just as in that illustration we opened with, the mistakes and the problems that were caused by this one decision were never meant to be this bad by Adam and Eve. But they certainly were, to the point that you and I even still feel the effects. Not because we inherit their sin, but because sin has infiltrated everything that we know. Tonight, looking at Genesis chapter 3, I want us to make note of five facts that we must always keep in mind as we seek to fight against temptation and sin. First of all, consider the fact that sin starts with doubting God. Eve did not take that fruit of the tree by accident. Instead, Satan, who is the tempter or the the serpent in the story, he appeals to her thinking, to her mind. And in doing so, he placed a doubt before Eve and she fell for that doubt. First, if you notice, he asked that very simple but very subtle question. Did, verse 1, did God actually say... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree, uh, of any tree that is in the garden? Do, Do you see the subtlety behind that question? The idea is basically to question, did God really mean what he said? Surely God would not withhold this one tree out of all these other trees from these two people. But then once Eve had answered that question, Satan went on planting more doubt. And starting in verse 4, and the screen should say verses 4 and 5, he said, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The idea behind this is Satan planting a doubt that God is is holding something good back from Adam and Eve. It is the doubt of doubting the very nature of God. He must not be too loving. He must not really be benevolent or all kind because he won't allow you to be like he is and have this amazing level of knowledge. But it begins with that doubt. 
And are these not the very same doubts that Satan can continually place before us, even all these centuries later? How often are we told that there's something that the Bible says, the Bible is the Word of God, and I know what the Bible says, but that's not really what the Bible means, or surely that can't be what the Bible means. Did God actually say these things? Did God actually say that the leadership in the church is to be faithful men and not men and women? No, we're told it can't be that because that's Paul who wrote that stuff. And, you know, Paul didn't like women anyway because he was talking to a a patriarchal society, a backward society. There's no way he possibly could have meant that. Did God actually mean in in our entertainment-saturated culture that that we can't use mechanical instruments and music and worship? I know that's what it says, but that had to just be cultural because maybe they couldn't afford instruments or something like that. You see, that's the way Satan still works. God couldn't really mean all these things he actually said. And then Satan puts the doubt in our mind that, about how God must be withholding something good from us. After all, if sin did not have some fun or lure attached to it, it wouldn't be tempting. And so we're tempted to think of what we could have or a position we could have in life, a place we could be in life if God wasn't withholding this thing from us or God wasn't restricting us in certain ways. He must not be all that loving. Do we see how these doubts begin? When When we begin to doubt God and doubt that what He says is really what He means, or we begin to doubt His goodness and the fact that when He says no, it's for our own good, We need to be very, very careful. To borrow that phrase from Genesis 4, it's at that point that sin is crouching at our door as well. Sin begins by doubting God. But you can also learn from Genesis chapter 3 that temptation has not changed. I think a lot of us have noticed those three things that are mentioned about the the sin or the temptation, I have to say, about the fruit of the tree that that, that Eve saw there. And we can become almost desensitized to how amazing that is with what John would write later in the New Testament. All the way over in 1 John chapter 2, we're given the description of what sin really is. In 1 John 2 verses 15 and 16, the English Standard Version puts it this way, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. I'm not a big fan of the, the common English Bible, but I like the way it translates verse 16, that list in verse 16. It puts it this way. Everything that is in the world, the craving for whatever the body feels, the craving for whatever the eyes see, And the arrogant pride in one's possessions is not of the Father, but is of the world. While there may be virtually incalculable variations of sin, or maybe we should say manifestations of sin, in reality, each and every temptation we ever face falls under those three broad categories. And we see that right from the very start here in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 6 of chapter 3 tells us that Eve saw the tree was good for food. For food. There's that desire of the flesh. It's not wrong to eat. We must to stay alive. But God had said, don't eat that. But that now there's a desire or craving from the flesh. Because now not, all, not, not the other trees are good enough. I have to have that one. And then we're told that it was a delight to the eyes, the desires of the eyes. Something about that fruit, we're not told what it was, but something about that fruit held her eyes. And she just seemingly couldn't get that image 
out of her mind. She couldn't turn her eyes away. And then we're told that the tree was desired to make one wise. There you have that pride for the things of this life. Adam and Eve were given intellect by the Lord himself. They, they were not fools. They were not idiots. They, they knew that Adam named all the animals. I couldn't do that. And if I might be able to, but I couldn't remember what I named all of them. But he was able to do that. They had intelligence. They carried on conversation. But now that didn't seem to be enough. They weren't as wise as God. And that's what they wanted. And so now they're being tempted by the pride of life or the pride of the things of this life. Now, we could list any sin we wanted to, any manifestation of sin, lying, adultery, gossip, false worship, name name anything you want. And every single one of them falls under those three broad categories of sin. Satan continues to place temptations before us as an appeal to our flesh and or an appeal to our eyes and or an appeal to the pride for the things of this life. What's ultimately tragic is we know that. We are not ignorant of his devices, Paul would write in the New Testament, and yet it still works every time we give in to a temptation. We can learn from Genesis 3 that temptation has not changed. It is still the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride for the things of life. We also learn from Genesis 3 that sin spreads. This account in Genesis chapter 3 would be tragic enough if if you please, just Eve sinned. After all, sin enters the world and and literally nothing is ever the same again. But one of the most striking points made in Genesis 3 is found at the end of verse 6. We're told that Eve took of the fruit and ate, but then we're told she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Wait a minute. Where was her husband? Where was Adam? Her husband who was with her. Scholars disagree a little bit about exactly what that means. What, what I mean is they, they don't disagree. That's what the text says. But some suggest it means he was literally you know, shoulder to shoulder, right by side with her. Some suggest that he was simply within earshot or eyeshot of what was going on. He wasn't standing side by side, but close enough that he knew what was going on. There are some, and I disagree with them, there are some who say he wasn't there when she ate, but he, she, he was there when she handed him the fruit. I, I don't think that's the case. I think he at least hears and sees what's going on, whether he's side by side or at least in earshot of what's going on. But at any rate, whichever of those is the case, Adam knew the same command that Eve knew. He knew what God had said, and he also knew that God had named the punishment for disobedience of this command. But still, when presented with the opportunity to sin, Adam fell into sin as well as Eve had. That's the way sin works. Folks, sin does not just affect one person. Sin spreads. Now, that's not to say, that is not to say that just because someone else sins that I now have to give in. It's also not to downplay our own personal responsibility. Each and every individual chooses to sin. We are drawn away by our own lusts and enticed. It's not someone else's fault when I choose to sin. That person may be guilty of tempting me, but I still make the choice to either obey God or disobey God, to be obedient or to be sinful. But when I see sin around me, it becomes so much easier simply to give in. Adam was created first. The woman was called his wife. He was to be the head of the household, the leader. But when his wife fell into sin, Adam was not strong enough to hold his place as the leader and stand for what was right. He caved too, and sin spread to his soul by his choice as well as to hers. 
in her choice. And quite literally, nothing has ever been the same. Many years later, but still in the same book, the book of Genesis, Joseph gives what's the proper response to temptation. If you're reading through the entire Bible using our daily Bible reading forms, you actually read this text this past week. When Joseph was tempted by Pharaoh's wife, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 37, you remember his response is, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And then he basically bought a good pair of Nikes and got out of there. That's the proper response, simply to leave. We may think it's a sign of weakness, but it isn't. It's showing true strength that sin does not spread to my life because I want to choose what's right. The purity of our souls is worth it. Sin will spread. It's easy to let our guard down when we are around it constantly. Number four, we learn from this text that sin leads to shame. One of the most striking charges, uh, changes excuse me, that, that occurs from this first sin is that shame also enters the world. Do you remember that after we're told about Eve, the creation of Eve back at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, it ends with a beautiful description of the purity of creation. In Genesis 2 and verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. But now contrast that with the last verse that Brother Roger read a few moments ago in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here's the question. What made the difference? What made the difference from chapter 2 and verse 25 to now chapter 3 and verse 7? Adam and Eve were wearing no clothing at the end of chapter 2, but there was no shame. They were husband and wife. Just a short time later, though... There's a realization here, and there's, there's a sense of shame. Why? Because both Adam and Eve realize that the other person, as well as themselves, have the capability of breaking a covenant. Adam realized Eve could, and Adam realized Adam could. Eve realized Adam could, and Eve realized Eve could. And from that, a sense of shame and having to hide, entered into the realm of mankind. Do you remember the story of Achan? A long time after the account in Genesis 3, when God's people, several centuries later, were entering the promised land. They had won that great victory over the city of Jericho. But at the next city, the city of Ai, they lost. And God said that it was because there was sin in the camp. That's where that phrase comes from. And Achan is finally found to be the one who had sinned. And do you remember he had taken several items that were supposed to be destroyed when Jericho was defeated? But do you also remember what he did with them? I mean, here, here was a man who, who had probably the greatest financial windfall of his entire life, but he doesn't put him on display behind a glass case and go, look what I now have. He doesn't have people come in for tours and say, look at these amazing things. He hides them under his tent. Why? Because he's ashamed. And also because, I believe, the realization hits them that if I'm willing to take things that aren't mine, what's to say someone else won't come in here and take what's not theirs? You see, there's a sense of fear and shame that enters the world when sin enters the picture. And sin still operates that way. We may feel for a moment like we've gotten away with something and there's kind of a high connected with that, but then we have to hide it. We don't want people to find out that we've lied. 
We don't want people to find out that we've been drinking. We don't want people to find out we've been looking at pornography. We don't want people to find out that we're the gossip. We're the one behind the story. We don't want those things. And so our consciences begin to hurt, which, by the way, that's a good thing. Our consciences should hurt. But instead of then admitting the sin, we try to hide it in our shame. It's a tragedy that that happens in Genesis 3. But it's the way sin continues to operate. It brings shame. And then number five... Ultimately, sin separates. Now, this goes beyond the text of our Scripture reading. But we remember that Adam and Eve later were driven from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. Their relationship with God changed because God is too holy to look upon evil. Habakkuk tells us that, the prophet later. that They were driven from the presence of the tree of life. They would never again be able to allow their eyes to focus on that tree of life. Sin has been called the great separator. Because it separates us from all good things. Isaiah chapter 59 opens with the famous words, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ears heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your, from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you that he will not hear. Again, Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Based upon that passage in Isaiah 59, the late and beloved brother Bobby Duncan used to preach a sermon called Sin the Separator. In fact, I have a copy of the outline in my office. And in that sermon, he used to say that sin will, or at least can, separate a person from many things. He said it can or will separate a person, number one, from God. Number two, from the family of God, the church. Number three, his or her family. Number four, a job. Number five, money. Number six, a good name or reputation. Number seven, good health. Number eight, the privilege of prayer. Number nine, a good conscience. Number ten, true freedom. And ultimately, number eleven, it will separate a person from heaven. And we see that separation for Adam and Eve. We see them driven out of this paradise, a place prepared where nothing nothing bad was there. And never again able to see the tree of life. And yet we still choose to sin. Why? When we know that sin will separate us from so many things. You've heard it said many times before. It sounds cliche, but it really isn't. That sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. Keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Those brothers in the illustration we used a few moments ago thought they had come up with a little plan. But do you remember what the, what the brother said? It was never supposed to get this high. If I may paraphrase, it was never supposed to be this bad. From the moment sin entered the world, it has been a destroyer of lives. And it never is supposed to be as bad as it ends up being. It's never supposed to lead to the kind of shame that it ends up leading to. It's never supposed to hurt anyone else. But it does. It has hurt this world more than everything else put together ever could. But there is hope. Do you remember our last point? That Adam and Eve are driven from the garden. They are separated. And they are driven away from that tree of life. The great hope of Scripture is that because of what Christ did many centuries later, even Adam and Eve have the opportunity to see the tree of life again. Because the tree of life 
in the book of Revelation is pictured in the midst of heaven. You and I are separated from many things when we sin. Some of them spiritual, some of them physical, based upon various sins we might commit. But we are separated ultimately from that hope of the tree of life. We're separated from that. Unless we come to the same solution. That Jesus offers that we can eat again of the tree of life. See, that's the hope of all Scripture. All the way from Genesis 3 through the end of the Bible, there is an answer for the greatest problem we will ever face. Sin, the separator. I know it's not a popular topic. I know it's a word that we don't even like to use anymore. But the Bible is not afraid to tell us that sin is real. And sin really has consequences. And if we're honest, every one of us would say, I know that. Spiritually and sometimes physically or relationally, we understand that sin causes problems. And yet still from time to time, because of, because of ignorance or because of simply our own desires, we, we still give in. But aren't you thankful that God gives us hope? Aren't you thankful that we don't have to end up that way? God loves us enough that though we choose to be separated from Him in our sins, He has offered a plan to where we can also choose to be reconnected. And that's why the Bible pictures that when one is immersed in water, baptized, that their sins are washed away. That's why the Bible tells us that those of us who are Christians, who have been immersed in water, who have been baptized, those of us who are Christians, that's why the Bible tells us that if, that if we will turn from those sins, He will put them as far as the east is from the west. He will remember our sins no more. You see, yes, sin's not fun to talk about. But God provides the solution. Why? Would you ever wait to be reconnected with God and have the hope of the tree of life in heaven? Why wait? Come while we stand and while we sing.